Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you. Uh, I know you're hearing a lot about it. I just want to reiterate my excitement as well for Victory Gardens. Um, there's a lot of practical upgrades, if you will. One, for instance, that I just found myself researching like hours on end into was how we could upgrade our coffee situation. Anyone want an amen? Coffee's, coffee's great here, but I'm telling you, I am, I am in it with you. This is the moment. This is our hour. We, we will determine uh, the coffee quality. And so looking into that, any suggestions open to. Um, practical things for sure. And yet, as Lizzie did such a great job sharing, there is a vision for us. We're not just going over across the street because we're looking to upgrade space or get better coffee, though God willing. God willing, uh, that is going to happen. We are going over there because, as we've been talking and dreaming as a team, um, one of the images words that came to me in our mission of helping people find their way back to God is what it would look like to build an urban sanctuary together. So just what does it mean, looking over at Victory Gardens, even thinking about our time here, to have a place that is a sanctuary for urban people, people living in Lincoln Park, people living in Lakeview, people living all across the north side of the city and beyond, a sanctuary where they can come and experience healing, right? Sanctuaries are like safe places. They can experience belonging. There can be a rest that you find in a sanctuary. And yet, as I was pondering this word, even as I was praying about it, sort of had this image, what would it look like to build an urban sanctuary together right over there in Victory Gardens? I was most struck by the root of sanctuary as a term that, of course, as soon as this hit me, it's like, duh. Sanctuary is a place of holiness that is set apart for an encounter with God. And so that really, I think, is what we are building towards. That's why we're moving over. That's all of the thought and intentionality and love we're pouring into Victory Gardens. We want to invite you to pray with us over, to prepare with us, even as uh, we have a number of those dates that are going to let us set up over there. We are praying for a sanctuary in Victory Gardens where people can come to encounter the living God. So I'm so excited about this. Uh, I wanted to let you know, just very practically, um, the way these things work, about four months ago, Jen and I were sitting down looking at our summer calendar. We were like, okay, it's going to be great. We haven't been to her family yet since we moved from Belfast over here about a year and a half ago. We should go back. What are the dates? When would this all work? And we were like, man, July is like really slow. Um, July, of course, makes sense for everybody to do summer vacations, but it would be good for us to be present to the church in July, you know, because I'm sure it's going to be a really important time in July. In August, Nothing happens in August. So uh, unhelpfully, this Friday, Jen and I are leaving for two weeks. You will not see me these next two Sundays. You will be in very good hands. Uh, John Ferguson is coming to teach next week. Uh, Jeff St Stark, for any of you who knew him back in the day, Jeff Stark is coming back to also teach for our last Sunday. Jeff apparently was telling me he taught uh, the first Sunday we were here at Lincoln Hall, and then he's coming back now to close it out. So it's going to be really sweet, really fun. But I did want to let you know, if you are like, has John died because of the stress of this move? Uh, I have not died. I will be on vacation, but I will be back, and you can look for me on the 20th when we will be back to move with you over to Victory Gardens. Okay, so all that preamble to say, let's dive in this morning to the scripture passage you just heard. We are in the Gospel of John. We've been doing this series called I Am, where we've looked at these seven I Am statements of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And as you could probably guess, at this point, we are going to be talking this morning about not one, but two I am's that Jesus says very close together, I am the good shepherd and I am the gate. So I was saying to our volunteer team before the service, if you are around the church world at all, about once a year, 
you hear a lot about sheep. Have you noticed this? Like, you find yourself moving through the Bible, a pastor's teaching, and then all of a sudden it's like, that was a sheep-heavy Sunday. Uh, as a pastor, I can tell you, I have researched more about sheep than I ever anticipated wanting to know. Uh, and to get us into sheep conversation, I wanted to begin with an image that many of you have probably seen. I think growing up, this was what I always saw in Sunday school. I want to take you back to the 1990s, circa Sunday school, where we got nice white shepherd Jesus, right? Oh, can we all give it a, aww, right? Here, so obviously Jesus has a mullet. Uh, Cameron, our sound engineer from Lincoln Hall, man managed to point out to us, it looks like Jesus has a party in the back and salvation in the front. So I'll let you sit with that. Uh, but my main problem with this picture is not Jesus, though Jesus arguably is a little problematic. Uh, the main problem I have with this picture is the sheep, right? This picture makes you think, we as sheep and Jesus as our shepherd, we're just these docile little, like, huggable lambs, just sort of draped on Jesus' shoulders, like, oh, man, this is so delightful to have Jesus carry us around. Let me give you a video I found in my sheep research this week that I think far more helpfully paints the picture of how you and I tend to live as sheep from a week-to-week -week basis. Go ahead and check out this video. <laughs> That's, that's us. Uh, that, that looks like me on the reg. Um, I think that's a helpful picture to just imagine yourself as a sheep as we're about to walk through what it means to be in relationship to a shepherd. Uh, sheep, actually, when you get into the research, again, speaking as a very well-versed person at this point, uh, sheep are not very smart. Uh, you may have just noticed from that video, sheep are actually quite unintelligent. They get into trouble all the time. They do not always listen very well. In fact, one other gem that I'm just going to describe to you because there was some swearing in it is this Scottish video of a Scottish farmer with sheep, and he's trying to herd them across a little cobblestone footbridge, and the sheep get stuck. Like, they're on the bridge, there's one sheep at the front, he's got about 100 sheep he's trying to push through, and with an amazing Scottish accent, the man just starts shouting, Go on! What's the matter with it? Like, get over the bridge! Go! Go! And I, again, feel like this is us with Jesus as a shepherd. We are sheep who are quite stuck most of the time. So, what does it mean this morning for us to sit once again with this beautiful sweeping passage where Jesus is trying to tell us something vital about who he is. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to John 10. I will have it up on the screen here for you, but this is a fun week to follow along. In John 10, just to give a little bit of context, uh, we're actually coming off this story in the Gospel of John where Jesus has healed a blind man. You might remember this. This happens in John 9. Uh, Jesus heals this blind man. This blind man goes back to his village, and he has been healed, and the Pharisees are not happy about this. The Pharisees are actually quite upset because to the Pharisees, as they explained to the man, his blindness was because either he sinned or his parents sinned. So in sort of the Jewish thought worldview at that time, uh, you'd get a deformity or a disease, and then it would just be assumed somebody messed up here to cause this to happen. And so this man being healed by Jesus was radically upending the Pharisees' system of how they understood the world. And so they actually get into this confrontation with this man, like asking him, hey, did Jesus forgive your sins? Did he forgive your family's sins? Like what happened here to be able to relieve this blindness? And the man says beautifully, 
I do not know <laughs> the answer to your questions. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And unfortunately, at the end of John 9, the man is kicked out of the community by the Pharisees. So I give all this context to you because what happens as you're reading the Gospel of John is that we hit John 10, and Jesus is a little bit lit, okay? He's like, he's coming in a little bit passionate because the Pharisees have just actively, actively undermined a work of healing, a radical act in which someone who had a genuine encounter with Jesus is now proclaiming with their whole life this vision of like, I was blind, but now I see. And the Pharisees are like, get out of here. This isn't working with our system. We don't understand how you fit or belong here. So this is why Jesus is going to lean in and paint a picture that we're going to walk through. It's the same sort of picture, and there's some different nuances as Jesus explores it. But man, it's such a striking and beautiful image of what Jesus has come to do and who Jesus actually is. So let's just read this together. This is verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Okay, so a little bit more sheep information to sort of enter into this beautiful picture that Jesus is painting. In Jesus' day, it was very common for uh, big farmers to have lots of sheep, but then also for families to own sort of small flocks. So you needed a lot of places to store your sheep because sheep would often be foolish and dumb and get stuck and find themselves in dangerous situations. So families and villages would often build sheep pens that were quite literally walls of stone that would be built with one gate. There's one entrance with walls of stone. Uh, if you start at the beginning of this passage, notice what Jesus is really sort of zeroing in on. There's a concern that Jesus is warning about that somebody other than the shepherd is going to come into the pen and is going to either steal or harm the sheep, right? This is sort of the drama that Jesus paints. The concern is that uh, the stranger is going to mislead the flock or is going to take the flock away. And in contrast to the, to the stranger, Jesus says, I am going to be the shepherd that the sheep will know. Actually, they're going to be so familiar with me, they will hear and follow my voice. Now, just a little bit of fun background for you. Uh, there is a New Testament scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey. And for a while, New Testament scholars would look at this and be like, oh, we know what Jesus is talking about. It's prayer. What a lovely picture. Jesus is saying, like, pray to Jesus and listen to Jesus in prayer, and you'll be able to hear his voice. Uh, Kenneth Bailey actually spent about 30 years of his life over in the Middle East, and he sort of disgruntled all of the New Testament scholars living over in the West by saying, hey, just a heads up, I'm over in the Middle East right now. I was watching shepherds, and the sheep actually know the shepherd's voice. In fact, what happens are that often in villages, you've got sort of a watering trough. The sheep will all come together, multiple flocks kind of head into these water trough areas. And yet because the shepherds spend so much time with their flocks, the sheep actually begin to recognize either a whistle or a call. Sometimes it can quite literally be a song that the shepherd will sing. And the sheep, as they're all sort of mixed and drinking and 
resting at this watering trough, as the shepherd begins to call, his flock will begin to follow the shepherd as the shepherd walks away. And Kenneth Bailey, uh, just interestingly, was like, I'm telling you, Jesus, Jesus yes, is speaking uh, with metaphor and analogy. Yes, Jesus is talking about prayer. We'll get there. But Jesus is actually talking about a real thing people would have, been, would have seen. There were pens with walls. There were thieves and robbers who would often get in. But then there is a shepherd, and the sheep would have spent so much time that the sheep would have actually known the shepherd's voice. So if that's the picture Jesus is painting, here's the drama that I want to just bring us into the present with, with a little bit of a provocative question. The question is this. If Jesus was concerned then with thieves and robbers, in his day, Jesus seems to be talking about the Pharisees at this point, right? If you're tracking with that context from John 9, if you see him begin by saying, Pharisees, you listen to me. There are thieves and robbers who are stealing from this flock. And so if we were to bring this all the way to the present today, I want to ask a somewhat humbling question. Who would the thieves and robbers be that Jesus is talking about now? Who are the dangerous voices that are actually disrupting or distracting sheep and possibly leading them away or even causing sheep to experience harm? If you can journey with me, uh, there's a wonderful book I found, a strange book. You'll just give me a second to talk you through it. The book is called Cultish. It's super fun. We're talking about sheep. Now we're talking about cults. A very exciting Sunday uh, here at Lincoln Park. Here's what was so interesting to me about this book. Amanda Mitchell wrote it. Uh, Mitchell is a journalist. She's putting out some incredible stuff. Uh, it was really fascinating. This just came out in 2021. In Cultish, Amanda Mitchell says there's a connection between radicals of all kinds. So radicals who find themselves in strange religious cults, all the way to radicals who find themselves really excited about the next Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Uh, the connection between all of these is language. Actually, she suggests if you track the language of cults, you begin to see these patterns that are now everywhere across our culture. And these patterns are really, uh, she names a couple of them, I've got them up on screen for you. The, they're really just uh, connected to our deep inner desire to belong to something, right? To find meaning and purpose somewhere. I think she does a great job exploring this, and she argues there's a number of techniques that are actually the same, whether you're in like religious communities or you're over in like social media influencer world or you get sucked down a YouTube algorithm and you're like watching the same person over and over again. And normally it begins with an us versus them dichotomy of the world, right? Somewhere along the way, the way, your language starts to say, we have something very beautiful and precious. They are sort of dangerous or confused and don't understand the important thing that we have. Then these communities often use what she calls thought-terminating cliches. I thought this was interesting, that there's kind of a line that is either, like in the conspiracy world, there's a line that's like, well, that's the deep state, right? Like. That's the deep state. I mean, if it's the deep state, you can't really argue with it. You can't uh, contest it. That's, that's a thought terminator. You can't really say anything more than that. Uh, but then they keep going with like belonging jargon and phrases. It's this sort of inner language. It's sticky words. It's things that help you feel like you're an insider to the group as opposed to an outsider. And then finally, very confusingly, psychologically, you're gonna get love bombed up front. Have you heard about this? Love bombing is where up front to whatever this community is, they're like, 
you're so great. Like, oh my goodness, we can't believe you're a part of this. This is so amazing. Like, you're wonderful, and we're just so honored you're here. You are so important to whatever our cause is. But then the deeper in you get, the more likely you're going to start experiencing some sort of threat if you leave, even if it's just rejection or if it gets even more sort of sinister and severe. As she tracks this, she actually walks through the last 50 or so years, and she paints two very interesting pictures. So the first one she goes after are religious communities that use this language of cultish. Uh, she tells some fascinating stories. I don't have time to get into all of them. One is the Jonestown Massacre. I had never heard about this before. Um, this was before my time, 1978. There's a religious community that starts in a church talking about the kingdom of God, and Jesus says we've got to share all our possessions, and then it gets like more and more socialist, and then kind of more and more communist. This is 1970s, so there's like lots of hippie stuff going on, right? And yet this community starts isolating more and more and more until this point when, in the extreme, the leader of the community says the time has come, uh, the new kingdom is about to dawn, but we all have to kill ourselves in order for this community to take place. And it's a massacre. About a thousand people are forced to commit suicide in this community. And she just looks at this and says, what is happening? Like, how could these credible, intelligent, educated people get sucked into this? This is crazy. Um, she also looks at Scientology. Again, I, don't, I shouldn't spend too much time on this, but I was so fascinated. I'm nerding out here just a little bit. Uh, Scientology, she explains, Ron Hubbard, if any of you have looked into this, I'd never known any of this before, uh, borrows a lot of psychology language, borrows a lot of New Age mysticism, has some weird stuff about aliens, and of course, Tom Cruise got involved, right? Like, all that's pretty intense. But the crazy thing to me was that she explained in Scientology, they offer you to come and take a psyche eval. They tell you things that are wrong with you, which all of us probably have things we'd say, yeah, that seems to be wrong with you. And then they offer you these self-improvement courses for $35. Really simple. Come join a course, $35. Uh, and then as you start taking these courses, every course ends with, well, you've got some more work to do, but here's another course, and it's going to be a little bit more money. And I kid you not, I kid you not, just to make sure we're talking about something very real, Jenna and I are walking on Lincoln Avenue yeah. in Southport, and as we are walking, I am telling Jenna about this book, which Bless her heart, she's had to listen far too much to cult-like uh, stories. We are talking, and I say, did you know Scientology, like this crazy stuff about Scientology? And Jenna goes, oh, look, there's a Scientology temple right here. And as she says that, and this is, I'm just, I'm still getting over this, a man is walking next to us and says, hi, I actually work at the Temple of Scientology. Would you two like to come in? I would love to show you around. And I'm like, ah, no, like, it's happening. Cultish is everywhere, like, I can't escape it. Um, but most tragically, and just to be clear and to bring this close to home, most tragically, the, the church has not escaped this, right? And that's why I think there's something important to name here in John 10, that the thieves and the robbers have infiltrated the church as well, and we've seen this play out in the scandals and abuses that has devastated the church, that been devastating the church for the last 30, 40, 50 years, and of course, beyond that. But to just name, uh, recently, she doesn't talk about this in her book, the, the documentary on Hulu about the secrets of Hillsong. I sat and watched this documentary and wept as I saw all of the, the techniques that she describes in this book play out. This invitation to belonging, this cause, like you could be part of something so much bigger than yourself, and then behind the scenes, there's power, there's all this competition for influence. There's then these horrific sexual abuses taking place, both personally and secrets that are being covered up. And as you watch it at the very end, the worst, most devastating part about this documentary are the people, the people that the documentary slows down with, who say, I came to this church 
because I wanted somewhere to belong, because I wanted to find God, and instead, all I did was get harmed by this experience. Now, I spend time talking about the religious elites and naming that as a, as a deep concern that we're going to need Jesus to respond to. Because, but uh, to be clear, Amanda Mitchell does not hesitate. In fact, I think one of the most helpful parts in her book is that she goes after, this isn't just happening in the church. This is actually taking place all over our culture. So, so be warned, she says, uh, the same techniques that had wooed people into these strange cult-like phenomenons are the techniques being used by social media influencers. Uh, she goes after astrology, especially these accounts. I mean, some of you have probably seen or followed, and it always starts out great, like, here's a way to help your life. Do you want some insight into how to master yourself, become a better person? You can be empowered to be who you want to be. And then you get deeper and deeper in, and this person is not trained. They're not certified. There's no accountability. They're really just there to make money. And then they begin to sell you some of their products. This happens as well in multi-level marketing schemes. She goes into this really fascinating account of the hashtag boss babe phenomenon. Uh, companies targeting late 20 women who have over a thousand followers on their account. They privately message them saying, hey, don't you want to be your own boss? Like, how great would it be if you just sign up for this business? And then before they know it, they're sucked in, bringing their whole community with them. Finally, though, my favorite, because this one hits close to home. Uh, she has this quote, this is Amanda Mitchell, uh, saying, when young professionals in urban centers stopped going to church, they needed a place to find meaning, find inspiration, and find themselves. The urban boutique gym is their generation's new religion. And as just an example of this, she highlights Soul Cycle. I got nothing against Soul Cycle. If any of you are Soul Cyclers out there, I have not personally tried it. But to just, just keep you with me, uh, I literally went onto SoulCycle's website. Did you know SoulCycle says on its main page, I quote, SoulCycle is more than just a workout. Now this one, unfortunately, is tough. They say SoulCycle is more than just a workout. It's a sanctuary. And then SoulCycle goes on to say, we ride together as a pack in candlelit studios to the rhythm of a one-of-a-kind playlist. We're coached by legendary instructors who motivate and challenge us riders to come experience breakthroughs and unlock our full potential on and off the bike, right? And the thing about this is it's motivational language offering you a place to belong and be transformed. And while as Amanda Mitchell gets into it, she says, you know, the only thing you're losing is however many dollars a month you're sinking into SoulCycle. Like, that's, that's normally the main cost. You can cancel your membership. The, the truth is, all of us, our culture, our generation, our city is looking for places to belong. We are looking for places of meaning. And we are actually all vulnerable, all vulnerable to get swept away by other voices who may not have our best interest at heart. So let's return to John 10, and let's see how Jesus carries this picture forward and what Jesus is saying in response. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. Uh, John says in verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech about the sheep pen, about the thieves and the robbers, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. <laughs> Feels like a pretty obvious point at this point. Understandably, the Pharisees aren't getting the message. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's what's surprising about Jesus' twist on the image he was setting us up for. We probably were expecting Jesus, if you look back on those first verses, to tell us first and foremost that he's the shepherd. But I want to let you just sit for a moment uncomfortably in the surprise that Jesus does not jump straight to being the shepherd. He actually begins with the gate. He says, I am the gate. Now, even in Jesus' day, that would have been a weird thing to say. Uh, It's not very typical or common for someone to take the posture of the gate. In fact, the strangeness of it is that Jesus actually insists for this exclusive entrance into what he is offering through himself. He says, there's not any other voices, there's not any other paths, there's no other way that you can find what I'm trying to describe to you, what I want to offer to you, unless you enter through me, the gate. Now, if we could be real for just a second, one of the things that's happened in our cultural confusion, the hubbub and struggle of being distracted by lots of voices, being hurt by the church sometimes, being hurt by others sometimes, kind of finding ourselves out on our own, is that we are very wary of committing ourselves to anything, right? Like, you and I do not want to be backed into a commitment. So I've seen this happen over and over again. Just the other night, we were out with friends. Uh, we were at a fun restaurant that had a very interesting menu. But have any of you ever experienced this? You, you sit in front of this amazing menu in Chicago that's like, this is amazing, look at all this food and the options. And you just start to get overwhelmed. Actually, you even start to feel a little bit of panic if you're being honest, because you're like, if I pick one, I'm going to miss out on all of the other ones, right? Like, what if I get this, but I don't get this? What if, but see, that one looks good too. And before you know it, inevitably, in our situation, we were out with friends who were married, we were married. Inevitably, the couples start pairing up. Have you guys seen this? Where it's like, all right, so uh, strategy time. Okay, what's the drink you're going to get? Because I'm going to get this one. Okay, what's the dish you're going to get? Because I need to get these other ones. And then even if there's a really good friendship, you start to get into the like, hey, are we at the point where we can, we can share? Like, can we, could I sip that and maybe try a taste of that? Uh, it, it literally got so bad that this friend of ours, as the waitress was there in front of us, was like, I can't decide. And we, we just looked and we're like, well, we're stuck, aren't we? You know, like, where do we go from here? I, I can't decide. Um, this, do, this doesn't just happen at restaurants. This happens with cars. This is the flood of information. It's like you go to pick a car and immediately, as soon as you've locked into your car, what do you do? You start to notice your car on the road, but then you start to notice all the other cars. And you start wondering to yourself, did I pick the wrong car? Uh, this happens with houses. For any of you, I know several couples here in our community have bought houses recently. You spend so much time searching Zillow, searching Redfin. You're comparing, you're comparing, you're comparing. You're hunting for an apartment. You're comparing, you're comparing. Then you lock yourself in, and what do you do just by habit the week after you've moved in? You open up Zillow again to start thinking and comparing and searching. Now, the problem with this approach to commitment is that we instead find ourselves wandering out on our own in what I want to call the open field of convenience. The open field of convenience. And yet this is the struggle. If we double down on convenience instead of commitment, we find that a number of possibilities are open to us, but we find ourselves increasingly cut off from the connection and to the belonging that we so desperately are longing for. So let me just contrast these two ways and see if this hits home at all. One of the problems for us in committing ourselves to convenience is this sort of mantra or belief that it's good if it's working for me. It's good if it's working for me. 
However, by contrast, if we commit, if we actually were to find ourselves locked in, like pursuing commitment, we instead can embrace an approach that says, it's good because I give everything to this, or maybe more specifically to you. Another approach of convenience, it's good if it's meeting my needs versus commitment that says, it's good because I say no to lesser things in order to say more fully yes to you. Final tag, it's good as long as it doesn't require me to commit. This is convenience's great mantra, and yet commitment says, what makes it good is that if I give everything to you, then I can receive everything back in return. I've been, as I throw those phrases up on the screen, I've been pondering this, especially in relationship to marriage. Now, I know not everyone here is married, uh, but our culture is having this moment where we are pondering what marriage really means and if we really want to commit ourselves to marriage. In fact, uh, just the other week, I was opening up the newsletter from the New York Times that I get in my inbox. I was scrolling through and I was amazed to discover a sex therapist who was consulting openly in this interview on the New York Times about polyamorous relationships. This is definitely a thing. This is happening here in the city, and it's definitely happening out across the globe. And the conversation she suggests, this is her quote, is, you know, it's becoming increasingly common for couples to realize no one could ever satisfy all your sexual needs. And so as long as you're both okay with it, it's perfectly reasonable to spend some time openly talking and exploring what needs you might have, what pleasure might be available to you, with other sexual partners and who you might want to explore these relationships with. Now, I know that's heavy, and I'm not here <laughs> to dive into polyamory. We've already covered cults, and we're already talking about sheep. There's plenty going on. Uh, but I do think this gives some weight to the difference in approaches between a life that is committed to convenience, a life in which it is our pleasure, it is our comfort, it is our happiness, versus what Jesus ultimately is calling us to here is a life of commitment, a life of commitment to Jesus. If we put the passage back up on the screen again, I just want to let you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not inviting us to go wander the open fields. Instead, Jesus is saying, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and might have it to the full. I might reword it in my own words this morning to say, the approach of convenience comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus has come to offer us the life that commitment requires. Now, at this point, I think a very fair final question as we try to wrap up this passage is for many of us, uh, while that sounds nice, you know, commit yourself to Jesus, we have in many ways, in many guises, been burned before, right? I, I think one of my great surprises sitting with this passage this week, realizing how pointed it was at the Pharisees, was realizing Jesus is almost speaking to those of us who have found ourselves not just burned out there in the world, burned by a relationship, burned by a job, burned by friendships that have fallen apart. Said so Jesus is talking to those who are at danger of being burned by the religious community that was meant to protect them. And so the question becomes, why would we ever do this risky, costly thing of committing ourselves to one gate, the one gate that Jesus is saying is our entrance into pasture and life? Why would we commit ourselves to just one shepherd? 
almost like anticipating our question, Jesus is going to respond this way in the next verse. This is verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I think this is, this is it. This, this is all Jesus has to put in front of us. In fact, to me, as, as I've been wrestling with preaching this passage, wrestling with our move over to a new church sanctuary, wrestling with my own calling to be a pastor here in the city, this, this is the heart of the good news that Jesus has come to offer. There, there's one, one reason, one reason why you should commit yourself to Jesus as opposed to any other option, and it's because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm actually the only shepherd who is truly good. Now, there's so many beautiful images that sort of sweep into this claim by Jesus. You can go all the way back to Psalm 23, where David reflects on God as his good shepherd, leading him to quiet waters, green pastures. Uh, Jesus also, in the other Gospels, is going to talk about the good shepherd who leaves the 99, who's so committed to the one sheep that has wandered away that Jesus would actually risk everything, you know, head into the treacherous terrain so that he can rescue the one sheep who is lost. Yet in this passage, Jesus offers the greatest gift anyone could ever do, and that is to lay down his own life for the sheep. How do you know that Jesus is good? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. I was thinking this last week about the greatest stories that we've kind of enjoyed culturally over the last 20, 30 years. You think about Harry Potter, right? I know there are several Harry Potter fans. How, how does Harry Potter end? What's, what's the big culmination of Harry Potter? Spoiler alert. Uh, Harry Potter lays down his life for his friends, right? This is what Harry Potter does. He offers his life. How does Star Wars end? The original trilogy, not the sprawling mess that we're in right now. Star Wars ends with Darth Vader laying down his life for his son. How does the Avengers, this great cinematic exploration over 10 years, end? By Iron Man laying down his life for all of his friends. There is no greater story that we can tell than one in which someone, someone who is truly good, finds at the greatest cost to themselves that they can offer themselves so that so many others can now flourish and live. Yeah, there's one more layer to this story that I do think is just beautiful. Uh, in Jesus' day, it was common for a gate to have the one, sorry, for a sheep pen to have the one gate, and therefore that one entrance to be uncovered. Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have power tools, wasn't a lot of wood, there's not a gate actually flowing, there's normally just an opening in this stone wall, which is where you'd come in and leave it was fairly common practice because that one gate was the one vulnerability at night. It's fairly common practice for the shepherd every night to lay down in the entrance to the pen, to quite literally lay down their life with the idea being that if anything came sniffing around, if there are any thieves and robbers trying to get in, if there are any wild animals that happen to be prowling around, before they could get to the sheep, they first had to go through the shepherd. I love this. I think sometimes we can get so used to Jesus and the cross and him laying down his life in this big cosmic sense, which is all true, that we miss how daily Jesus is offering us. Almost this picture of himself as a shepherd that's like, every night I'm going to lay down my life in front of you because you are my sheep and I am the good shepherd. 
Here's one last photo. This closes our sheep fun. Uh, there was a story that came out. It's a feel-good story. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's kind of beautiful and interesting, though. Um, a sheep named Barak, okay, tracking with me, a sheep named Barak uh, was found having wandered the Australian woods for two years, two years being unshorn. And so as you can see, <laughs> it's, it's my haunt your nightmares. Um, the sheep has, they discovered 78 pounds of wool on the sheep and like how the sheep survived is kind of amazing. Um, they said the sheep was still eating, but it couldn't see. And the wool, which had gotten all kinds of stuff in it, was causing sores, uh, painful blisters. And yet, uh, as these shepherds literally found the sheep, they began to shear it, right? They took off the excess wool. And there's just this quote that gripped me in this story. Again, you can find this on YouTube. Um, one of the caregivers said, you know, sheep aren't meant to live without a shepherd dangerous when sheep live for too long without a shepherd. So the reason I offer this picture to you is that I think some of us, if we're being honest, are afraid of commitment because we have truly been burned. And in our fear of commitment, we've tried to wander this open field of convenience, and yet we've kind of been avoiding either the shepherd or the gate, right? We haven't wanted to commit to the gate, or maybe we've been unsure about the shepherd. My invitation to you this morning is don't live without the good shepherd. Don't be afraid of committing yourself to this gate. Enter in to this beautiful life that Jesus wants to provide for you. Here's the final photo. This was them after they took off all the wool, after he was cared for, nourished back to life, I mean, Barak looks pretty skinny, <laughs> looks a little banged up, if we're being honest. Um, he's been through a lot, and yet I love, I love this thought. What would it look like if you could actually receive from the shepherd who is good? Let me pray for us as we get ready to turn to this table. Jesus, we have many fears, and we have many of our own sores, our pain, the bumps and bruises that have come from entrusting ourselves to those we thought could be trusted, finding instead the thieves and the robbers, finding instead ourselves once again out on our own. I pray for our community now, even this morning, Lord, that we would be able to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, that your song would begin to sing over us, a song that we recognize, a song that we've been hearing for a while now, Lord, Pray even now in the silence of this moment, Jesus, speak to your people. Tell them about the life you have. Invite them into your fold. Don't let them hear us, Jesus. Don't let them get distracted. Sing to them clearly, Lord, so that we might all follow your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.